0: Defense policy will forever be debated, but nearly everyone agrees ways exist for the Pentagon to spend more wisely. One potential for savings comes from the prices for spare parts. It came up recently in congressional hearings. The Project on Government Oversights, Mandy Smithberger, testified, and she joins me now. Mandy, good to have you back.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And this issue of spare parts prices is as old as the hills, really, for the military. And what is it you told Congress, the appropriators, and what's the fundamental issue here with what it costs for spare parts?
1: Right. So the fundamental issue here is that there have been a lot of laws put in place that make it that much harder for the government to negotiate fair and reasonable prices. They have to jump through a number of hoops to be able to get certified cost or pricing information to determine if something is actually being offered for a fair price. And one of the biggest loopholes we have found is really misuse of what is called commercial items. Now, in a commercial environment, you actually have a market that's determining that a price is fair and reasonable. But for the government, in a lot of these cases, so-called commercial items are actually sole source, that so you only have one person you're buying from, and it's really difficult to determine if you're getting a fair deal. And certainly, the government questions if they're getting a fair deal when a price you know, goes up 50% or 100% in a year.
0: So there are parts and pieces and sustainment items that the military needs that can be commercial. I mean, if you have a part for a fighter that is only for that particular plane, that's one thing. But I guess they have lots of vehicles and platforms and weapon systems that at least parts of weapon systems where there are commercial counterparts and the same part could be a lot less money.
1: No so the issue is is that in a number of those cases even though the government is the only customer and the contractor will argue that some of these parts are actually commercial because they're similar enough to something that is offered on the commercial market. And so it makes it that much more difficult for the government to get the kind of cost or pricing information that they would normally be entitled to to get negotiate fair prices. So in a number of cases, the Department of Defense Inspector General has actually looked at some of these spare parts and found, even though this is labeled commercial, actually the government's the only customer. We have really have no instances of seeing that there are other customers to make sure that these prices are fair.
0: So how can you determine if it's fair? Because if the government's the only customer and it's exclusive to something that's military, is there a way to get some reasonable level of what the government should pay for those things?
1: Absolutely. The companies could be required to provide the government certified cost or pricing information. And so we think particularly when you're talking about these sole source environments, that that is information that the government should be entitled to to be able to negotiate those fair prices.
0: Give us some recent examples where you've seen this kind of thing.
1: Absolutely. So we've seen this with everything from, you know, small kinds of pins (laughs) where it's been charged, uh, where the cost is significantly higher, bevels, all kinds of little small parts. And in some cases, there's been an upcharge of, you know, 4,000% for a spare part. In one case, there was an engine that had not been deemed commercial before. They changed the definition of what commercial was, and then suddenly the price went up.
0: Interesting. Yeah, things like pins and bevels, small maintenance items. Could it be that the government itself is causing, in some ways, that kind of pricing because of the process required to acquire them that costs the contractor more? I mean, what drives the price? Or is it simply contractors feel they can get it because they are the sole source?
1: So I think in a number of instances, you do find that companies think that they are able to, you know, use their advantage. And honestly, they have an obligation to their shareholders to do as much as they can to make profits. So I think that can be the problem in some instances. But I think it's also on the government where they haven't really been thinking about what are the long-term sustainment costs of maintaining these weapon systems? How are we making sure that the aftermarket for these different kinds of parts aren't going to put the government in a bad position where companies can buy sole source suppliers and really have the government be in a very weak market position to negotiate fair prices.
0: We're speaking with Mandy Smithberger. She's a defense spending analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. Then I guess you could say this issue backs up further left in the whole supply chain with respect to how these systems are designed, and perhaps they could be designed and built with sustainment in mind in the first place, and maybe some complexity left out in favor of ease of maintenance and low cost and sustainment?
1: Absolutely. I think as much as possible, we want these systems to be simple to maintain, that we want service members in the field to be able to fix their own equipment to the maximum degree possible so that they're resilient and flexible.
0: Yeah, that's another issue, too, is the fact that very often the government cedes the contracting right to do the maintenance and repairs to the original contractor. And that can be expensive and also a logistics issue.
1: Absolutely. I think the department is increasingly understanding that they have been allowing themselves to be at a disadvantage, and so they are initiating initiatives to be able to negotiate more of these intellectual property rights. But, you know, obviously for a number of systems that we already own, it's tough once the milk is spilled out of the bottle to, you know, put it back in to make sure that we are controlling costs.
0: Yeah. How is it that the ability to maintain something is posited as an intellectual property issue? It's not as if the government is going to copy the machine and make it themselves in a government factory and sell it. How is maintenance and repair get tied to intellectual property?
1: So some of the things that those companies would argue is that they become concerned that if the government has information about these plans, that they could then compete this and you know give this information to other companies to be able to provide these services, because as you're saying, you know, it's not like the government is going to be standing up their own manufacturing. But we would actually like to see more of those opportunities to allow entrance, to allow new small businesses to be able to provide some of these services to the government and for us to see more competition. But that is, you know, one of the primary concerns. From these larger companies that where they're trying to maintain what's becoming a really profitable line for a lot of them. You've seen companies saying that, you know, the department going after our intellectual property rights is really going after a lot of our business model. So it'll be interesting to see how this proceeds.
0: Yeah, so legitimate, I guess, arguments on both sides. But couldn't a contract simply say, we have the right to the blueprints and the plans for the purposes of sustainment and repair, and we won't share it with anyone else in industry? Wouldn't that be kind of an what? easy answer?
1: <laughs> too easy for government work. Now, <laughs> yes, we would like to see. I think in a number of these instances that contracting officials have not felt empowered to be able to negotiate those kinds of rights to make sure that we're doing within in the best interest of our service members in the department.
0: All right. And just briefly, what else did you tell Congress with respect to just keeping costs under control in this whole area of repair and sustainment? What other steps could be taken within reason in the next NDAA, for example?
1: I think one of the biggest ones is something that was proposed under the Obama administration is changing the definition of commercial items to really be what we think a commercial item is, something that is sold in like quantities on the market. We would also like to see lower thresholds so that more of these contracts can include providing certified cost or pricing information so that we are going to get a good deal for this. And then as you were talking about largely with sustainment, I think the government needs to be obtaining and making available to the public more information on what are the real costs of service contracting, and rather than having some of these services brought into government or done by military personnel.
0: And the strange thing is there is a lot of agreement with this on the part of military personnel themselves, too, isn't there?
1: Oh, absolutely. You hear people are probably familiar with the right to repair movement when it's talking about, you know, your phone or your tractor. But it's also something that's we're seeing in the military as well, where they want to be able to maintain their own equipment in the field. They don't want to be dependent on contractors, just as none of us want to be dependent on tech support. <laughs> in order to be able to proceed with our day, they would like to see these systems be easier to maintain.
0: Well, let me tell you something. The first time I paid for an oil change on a motorcycle was the last time I paid for an oil change. I said, I may be an old guy, but I'm going to figure out how to do this myself because it's 10 times as much as a car oil change. And, uh, you know, all you need is a wrench.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, members of the military want to be able to take care of themselves.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and we support that. Mandy Smithberger is a defense spending analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. As always, thanks so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We'll post this interview along with a link to her testimony at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast Warner wherever you get your shows.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA.